this week on South Road Podcast, it's all about South Africa, as we're joined by Jared Wright to preview the World Champions. Can they retain the Webb Ellis Cup? As we take a look at their historic record-breaking win over the All Blacks, and just how big of a statement was that ahead of the World Cup. We'll also take a look at the group of death and discuss potentially is the 7-1 split a genuine possibility on the bench ahead of this tournament. And we make our predictions for South Africa ahead of the World Cup. Enjoy. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Please to announce we have our South Africa World Cup preview and I've got Jared Wright on. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks to you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So, yeah, I guess with South Africa, take us take us back to Friday then. Uh, I think you were there, weren't you, in, in Twickenham? Yeah, lucky enough to to be at the game. Uh, it's always great when you get a, a big victory like that. Um, I don't know if uh, you were at the Scotland game where um, Scotland almost beat the All Blacks. Like it, it must have been incredible that kind of game for a Scottish fan. But uh, just for me, I was at uh, uh, South Africa versus New Zealand in Durban a couple of years back, and. Uh, we got absolutely rinsed, so it's it's great to be on the other side of the result for for us. Um, so yeah, that result seemed to send shockwaves through well, rugby Twitter anyway, and across the rugby world that uh, hmm. Africa all of a sudden are favourites. I assume that result wasn't a surprise, and you've been waiting as a South African for that result, and maybe you all maybe thought it was going to come in the group stage, and. It's now come now and everyone now remembers South Africa are the team because they are South Africa are famous for peaking in the World Cup. Um yeah. like Ireland, who you know, well known for peaking before World Cups and not in the quarterfinals. So was that your thoughts of that game? You thought South Africa needs to put in a performance, especially after the rugby championship, to show everyone, or, or are South Africans never that bothered about letting people know they're good and it's all about internally <laughs> we'll turn it on when stages and the knockouts and all happen uh I, I i don't know if i could say i expected that kind of performance like i don't think anyone ever goes in expecting to beat the all blacks by 20 um regardless of how good you think you are so yeah i i i think it was definitely bubbling under that we we needed a big result and uh I thought Wales might have been that, even though it was against um, an inexperienced Wales team. But yeah, just the the level of the performance was great. And um, a lot of things really clicked. And South Africa love suffocating teams. And I, I, like they're just constantly keeping that pressure on. And I thought we did that brilliantly against New Zealand. And if, if they're able to do that to teams, you just tie them out. It's like a... Yeah, so it's like one of those old uh, heavyweight boxing matches where you're just taking blow for blow for blow and a team has to sort of just try hang in there and land a counter punch that knocks them out and the All Blacks just didn't have any counter punches this, on Friday. Were we, were you ever worried about the game for the rugby championship where the All Blacks blitz South African 15 minutes or, or did you think that was just a 15-minute blip and you were never worried about Springboks preparations and the All Blacks are that couple of steps ahead going into the World Cup. Yeah, I wasn't too concerned about the results. Um, big, big reason for it was the way that we were able to come back into the game in the second half, and it was almost like a 
it, it reminded me of England versus New Zealand in the 2019 World Cup, where uh, everything that England did well on that day um, in Japan, the All Blacks did that uh, against the Springboks in Auckland. It was their game plan was just completely on it. Whenever the Springboks did get a scrum, New Zealand got the upper hand at the scrum and managed to get a penalty and everything just went their way for a good 20, 30 minutes and it just didn't go the Springboks way. And I, I think there's a lot of um, parallels that you can draw between the game in Auckland and the game in um, Twickenham. Um, like New Zealand did also come into the game after two, three week break, haven't had uh, much rugby and they they looked a little bit off the mark. So there was a few things like their timing was off at the the defensive malls and um yeah, they, they just looked a little bit rusty. So I, I, I wouldn't um I wouldn't write the All Blacks off after that game. But uh yeah, it, it showed that South Africa can put a big score up against one of the the Martier teams. Which probably wasn't ever a, a doubt. And then as you yeah. say the back-to-back weeks shows that South Africa are ready now for the World Cup and do you think going into the group stage South Africa nearly need to peak a bit earlier than they probably need to win five games in a row rather than three but that's it we've been thrown around in the podcast is does winning that group really matter I know obviously you got to beat Scotland yeah. and Ireland in case some beat each other but is topping that group really and the desire mm-hmm. to top that group and potentially maybe losing a few players and if you have a real proper test maybe against Ireland and you lose a few bodies then have to back it up then in a quarterfinal against a France New Zealand too a bit like South Africa in 2019 played their big game up first and then have been prepping for the quarterfinal for weeks. Yeah. Do you think do you think that pull really not it's overhyped, but it's just about getting through that pull and then going from there yeah. and maybe the big game against Ireland, which is starting to get hyped up now, world number one against world number two, is that is that a win not necessarily essential? Yeah, I, I, I think I think you sort of on the on the right track there is that uh, it for the for those two pools it it doesn't it just matters that you get through. So for Scotland, um, I think South, South Africa and Scotland are a bit uh, have a kind of draw. Um, in in the way that our pool stage has been set up, in the fact that Ireland have to play Scotland and South Africa back to back, while South Africa and Scotland go at it straight up in the start, and then have um, your Romania and your Tonga games, and then you tackle Ireland. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it, yeah, I think you're right. So whether you play New Zealand or you play France in the knockouts, and who knows, maybe even Italy. This World Cup could be. Could be absolutely mad. So, yeah, wh- whoever whoever you get in that quarterfinal, it's it's not going to be an easy game. And yeah, you you might as well make sure that you get through the group. And whether you take a loss or or not, uh, I think this could be another World Cup where the team that wins it has lost the match during the pool stages and still goes on to win it. Yeah, which obviously doesn't mean lose on purpose. So that happens, but. Just mentally, I feel <laughs> to win five big test matches. I know it's not in a row for South Africa, it's in a row for Ireland, but to put that together feels a massive ask. So, do you think if South Africa target that Scotland game, which I assume they'll be doing, 
and they and they come through the Scotland game well in terms of bodies and stuff, would they be maybe considering resting a few players against Ireland? A bit like in the rugby championship where they sent the the second string famously with Australia and battered them. Pressure's off, they probably will play well, but then save a few bodies for a quarter final. So that's why the draw is nice for South Africa and the fact that Ireland probably can't do that with obviously mm. Scotland to come. So do you think potentially resting players for Ireland could be a, a way around that? Um I, I don't think so. Um I th- I think South Africa will be playing their their full strength teams against Scotland and against Ireland. Um I do think they've built quite a bit of depth at the moment. Um we've always had sort of two packs that could match anyone um in Test rugby, but I, I think we've built a lot of depth in the back line, um, particularly in the centers and we saw how Andreas Dayson and Caden Moody went uh, against the All Blacks. So yeah, losing guys like uh, Lucanio Abm and Andre Pollard means we've had to check our depth, and I think they've got some excellent backline players that could that could sort of interchange quite seamlessly. Um, but I don't think they'll be resting any kind of bodies um, anyway, at, in any way or form during um, that game against Ireland. Um, I, I sort of look at it if you if you look at um, the quarterfinals semi-final final um, and then you include the last pool stage match I think a lot of teams will be using that four game um, period almost like a mini rugby championship or a mini six nations where every single game is sort of pivotal and just getting guys straight through that 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 motion and I think it sort of shows that when you look at the uh, last round of rugby championship matches that New Zealand and South Africa went with um, pretty strong teams in their last game and so did Scotland whereas a team like Ireland went in with their second string against uh, Samoa knowing that their first game isn't against one of the top tier one nations at the World Cup so they don't need to peak immediately in the first game of the tournament yeah, and why are South Africa so good at peaking? Is it just experience pre-winning previous <laughs> World Cups? It does seem that they are turning the screw now as it matters. And not that mm. I always say that South Africa don't care about the autumn, and I know that's not really fair, but sometimes it does feel that way that they, there's a few games in the autumn that they could have put on a proper showing and they don't. Like you know the France game, yeah. game, and they could have brought it a slightly more than they did, and they were holding potentially things back. Do you think any of that is is they do that on purpose during a cycle to then peak when it matters? Yeah, I I, I don't know if we necessarily do it on purpose just to peak at the World Cups. Um, I think we do sort of give feelers out and try a thing here and there. Um, I think a lot of teams do that. Um, and we've seen a bit of that with Ireland and uh, with New Zealand in the in the last eighteen months or so. Um, but yeah, I I think the part of the reason we peak so well during the World Cups is it's that one time during a four year cycle where um, the play the coaches have the players for extended period of time and they're able to keep them in camp and really nail down on a few things and like test a few things out in um, your smaller pool stage matches and 
sort of on out a few minor details and that kind of thing. So, yeah, Scotland do pull some players from um, like the Premiership teams and that kind of thing, but it, it's not quite on the same scale as what uh, South Africa do and how they have to bring players in. Even the size of South Africa um, itself, um, it means that when we have what they call alignment camps, they sometimes have to split the the country in two on which uh, they do the coastal teams and then they do the inland teams um, together. So it's that one time where they really have everyone all on the same page in the same team squad um, for a really extended period of time. Yeah, and I guess the World Cup then falls usually after the rugby championships so they've got extra time together and that's why they obviously... It's exactly that, yeah. And as you say, they're all... Unlike like a Leinster and stuff, they're playing together consistently yeah. and all the players all over the place. So, no, that's, I think you've probably nailed it there. And just in terms of you spoke about death, um, obviously when the news came out, it was quite big news about Pollard and uh, missing out in the squad. How big a loss do you think they are? And do you think there's any chance with injuries and stuff they could still come back in? It was a bit confusing reading about it, how... They were on standby, but then they were ruled out because they weren't fit enough, but they're fit enough to be on standby list. So what do you know about that in terms of their availability? <clears throat> so so the way I understand it is that um, Pollard would have been fit uh, to go against Scotland, and uh, but it would have mean, meant that he went in without any game time. So um, there, Jacques spoke about, I think it was the 2011 um, Rugby World Cup, where South Africa, during one of their training sessions, they had 13 players in the build-up to a test match that were fit enough to train during the week. So they didn't even have a full team to to really go all out in training and actually prepare for a game properly. And uh, he, he sort of says that's where his thinking behind all of this was, is that he's not really taking any passengers, um, anyone that must be, that that's, going to be picked in the squad has to be fit and firing to play the next Saturday um, when they announce the team. And for Am and Pollard, it just, they, they weren't able to do that. And yeah, they, they also explained it during the Chasing the Sun um, documentary where um, South Africa didn't pick uh, Chez and Colby to play against Wales in the semi-final of the, of the World Cup. They went with Sabu and Corsi. And their whole mantra throughout the tournaments is if you can't train on Monday, you can't play on Saturday. And Colby was unable to train on Monday, but by Tuesday it was fun. And he still didn't get in the team, uh, even though Rossi at the time thought, no, maybe I should change my, my rules now. And they like hit against him and said to him, no, you've, you've put these rules, you've put these play, things in place that stick to them. And it's sort of, that's that's where I think they've they've gone down this route with uh, with not selecting Pollard and um, um but I fully expect if there is an injury in the back line or possibly even the pack that they will be they will be calling up another another they will be calling up either one of them. Yeah, and in terms of the replacement, my Labok. As someone that watched mm. the URC, I've always been excited by him and I, he always felt like a future springbok. And the one thing that was always missing was his goal kicking, which he brought at Twickenham. Do you think that's maybe a wee bit too quick to say that's sorted now? He's going to be kicking goals, court final, like a court final, semi final, when, when the pressure really comes on. That's when 
goal kicking's different. Do you think mm. his goal kicking is a concern, or potentially by then could you have a Pollard back and it is just building depth? And then you have two players that can do it on the crunch moment, and you're not completely relying on Pollard if he comes yeah. back. That's a big if. Yeah, yeah, that is a big if, and uh, yeah, I, I don't think you can just say okay, he did well at Twickenham. He had quite a few shots that were straight in front. Um, he did have um, two that were quite tricky, and he managed to nail them all. So yeah, yeah, I think with kicking, it's always a it's always a confidence thing for for any kicker, and he will take a lot of confidence from from that one. Um, <clears throat> funny enough, I, uh, I've heard suggestions that it's the shot clock that's been reintroduced and properly enforced now that's uh, sort of messed with his flow. So <clears throat> I think uh, you'll definitely get used to that. And by the time the quarterfinals and that ro roll around, I think uh, he'll definitely be in his stride. Um, well, I hope he'll be back in his stride. And he's shown during the URC that, that he can hit over those clutch kicks. It it is different when it when it comes to international rugby, but I think he's more than capable of doing it. And if if Pollard does come back, I think it is a huge boost. But it's not like Pollard doesn't have his games where he kicks fifty percent of his kicks. It, it happens. It happens. So yeah, I I, I think uh, Leibok does add an extra threat on attack. Um, and his line kicks, particularly at Twickenham, were exceptional, which Sometimes we'd be taking a shot at goal, but he's putting um, the the forwards five meters out from the line, and yeah, then, then it's then it's it's not always a clean hit that you're going to score a try, but with that Springbok pack and being able to bring a whole new pack on, it, it does make a a big difference. Yeah, maybe that that is the strategy. If you can if you can score that many ball tries, you don't <laughs> need to put the conversions over. Yeah, talk about the big pack there and. Not again, that's been hidden for the last four years, but since 2019, you probably haven't seen that power game come back until the yeah. last couple of weeks. And then I know the 7-1 happened because, on the bench because of Willie LaRue's late withdrawal. Do you think there could be um, a potential to have a 7-1 on the bench? And who is that player that can basically cover everything and it could it be the likes of Shes and Colby if needed, could go into nine? Is, yeah. is it that if if you were going to do it, do you stretch it that far? And do you think that could be a genuine option? Because I've seen online it's got a bit of people saying mm. it's very, very unfair, but I'm sure if, if other nations <laughs> had the luxury of bringing on a full international top quality pack, they'd be doing a 7-1 too, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, they can say it's unfair, but I mean, Finn Russell throws passes that most players can't throw, so that's pretty unfair. So, Let's outlaw Finn throwing those passes, or um, Antoine Dupont can kick with both feet, and we can we say he can only kick with his right foot. <laughs> that, that's sort of how I see it. But uh, I I think there's a genuine chance that they they will play a seven-one bench during the World Cup. Um, contrary to popular belief, I don't think it will be in any of the big games. Um, I think they might be doing it against Romania and Tonga. And um, purely based on keeping um, most of the forwards as fresh as possible while still uh, keeping them match fits, but still keeping them fresh for the next game and the next game. So 
yeah, I, I think uh, that's that's very much on the cards, and uh, a, t- a team like Tonga and Romania could could expect that. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Cheson Colby is a kind of player that uh, could potentially play in nine, ten, and fifteen um, for the Springboks. Uh, Grant Williams is uh, a, a good shot for wing and scrum half. Um, he actually played a lot of wing before he um, really broke through at the Sharks. Um, and someone like Jaden Hendricks uh, is uh, going to be a nine and ten with with Fata Clack. So, yeah, I, I think it will mean that there's a lot of um, backline utility that needs to happen. And it, yeah, you you don't really want to be playing um, somebody like Quaker Smith. You don't want him moving out to the centres because you've had two injuries in the backline, um, and you don't want. Like him he was, to he was against. my shout. He was my shout the other day for. I mean, yeah. who would be the forward that you chuck out there in an emergency? And I said it'd be Quagga Smith. So is he the guy that yes. could just chuck? He's just a mad rugby player, like a bit like a Justin Tipperick that they've always famously said you yeah. play anywhere. You, you could chuck him at thirteen yeah. madly. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he he's an ex sevens player as well. Um, he played for the Blitz books for a very long time before before finally getting his shot with the box, and uh, he could he could potentially play on the wing, and he has done for. The Lions, and um, I think he did about ten minutes for the Springboks on the wing before. So he, he's definitely there. Um, somebody like Dion Free has got quite a bit of pace, um, but he'll be covering hooker and and flank more. Um, yeah, Sia Kalisi spends a lot of time in the um, in the wider fifteen channel, but I don't think he'd be he'd be too sharp as a, as a winger. And uh, we 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 also saw Quibus uh, Reinach playing. Uh, Playing wing for for the box, um, quite funny that uh, he he almost went chasing after the ball shortly after coming on um, as a scrub off, and then realised oh no, <laughs> I'm not playing there today. <laughs> yeah, and do you think that's that's a genuine advantage Springboks have over other nations is the ability for players not to play multiple positions, but you're talking three, four, five in certain areas that that of depth across everywhere and the ability to mm-hmm. then play about a bit on the bench that is kind of the, the competitive advantage and the uniqueness that other nations maybe don't have and they may be relying on players to be 100% fit and as you say mm. patching boys up and stuff for the big games when they're not 100% whereas South Africa have the culture of we we trust everyone in the squad and maybe other nations mm. don't have that yeah, I, I think it's just sort of uh, the tone that's been set by the current coaching staff and um, it's sort of learning from past mistakes more than um, just fully trusting the, the current squad. Um, they've sort of given the current squad the opportunities to prove themselves and they've taken them. Um, so, yeah, like South Africa have done it quite a lot in the past and Hanika Meyer, um, Peter de Villiers, even Alistair could see it to a degree where players have been um, chosen on reputation and even if they're not 100% match fit and it, it's it's cost us games. And I mentioned earlier with the 2011 uh, World Cup where we had a whole bunch of guys injured and weren't able to, uh, to play or train ahead. So I, th- I think they've taken a lot of learnings and someone like Jacques, Ninova and Rassi, they've both been in the Springbok setup for over 10 years now um, and 
it doesn't feel like that for for a lot of fans because they came in in 2018. But they've been in and around the the squad for probably since about 2007 or 2009. So it's it's been a very long time for them. So you you do pick up uh, those kind of things, but yeah, it's sort of learning from that, pushing guys to be more versatile than just sticking to becoming out and out specialist, um, which which has certainly helped and has given us an advantage there. No, because it feels like South Africa, the whole ah, uh, he's centre, but he can he can play he can play thirteen or twelve, or he's a winger that can play on mm. a foot like that's not that's not enough. You have to be like Shesley now. You have to be able to play nine, ten, uh, wing and fullback. But just finally, in terms of a bit of inside, Rassi, you mentioned there. What is his actual role now? Because I feel a lot of people from outside of South African stuff still see it as his team, but it, it really isn't. You know, Nian Abbott's head coach, he's yeah. the man in charge. But what do you think Rassi's role actually is now for the Springboks? And what's, what, what's his official title? And what's his, what do you think his impact will be on the World Cup and a bit more on the pitch now, do you think? Yeah, um, so his official role is the director of rugby. Um, so it's much like the setups in um, the club rugby in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I'm trying to think of a decent example, but I, I, I think it was with um, Edinburgh at the moment where Steve Diamond was um, the director of rugby and you had it was Mark Blair as the head coach underneath him. Or was that... Yeah, but but anyway, I think yeah, that's sort of the same setup. Leo Cullen and Sir Lancaster, obviously, so two proper yeah. rugby men in there. So Rassi does oversee everything, and he is effectively um, Shark's boss. But uh, I, I think it still very much is Jacques Nienaba's team. It's got a lot of his fingerprints all over the, the game plan, uh, the selections, Someone like Moni Leboc uh, was always going to uh, thrive under him um, as he looked for a more attacking fly-half, um, while Rassi's more of a, a kicking specialist. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's they've, they're very uh, good friends, the two of them. Um, they go back a little, very long time, and... Uh, I think it's it's a short it's sort of more of a shared thing, but Jacques is getting that uh, that final say while Rassi's adding wherever he can and uh, taking pressure off uh, Jacques wherever he can. Yeah, and that's interesting. And then just finally, in terms of your own prediction, why do you think South Africa will go? And I assume success is retaining the Wabels Cup and. Yeah, South Africans don't take anything else at World Cups. You know, a loss in a final is not success, is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, our fans will definitely be demanding a, a title defence, and we have the the squad and the team that can do it. Um, if I do go in the ways of predictions, I'm not going to say that we're going to win it or we're not going to do it. But uh, I think South Africa will decide who wins the World Cup, whether they win it or don't. Um, I think anyone that Plays if anyone plays them in the semi-finals or the quarterfinals of the World Cup, I think they'll be knocked out in the next round. So, if they're able to beat South Africa in the semi-finals, I don't think they'll be able to win the final. Um, I think it'll just be too attritional, and that that it will be their tournament done. Well, I I agree with that the the attrition factor and stuff, and 
Do you think this squad is, in terms of 2007, uh, 95, 07, 2019, do you think it is as good, if if not on par or slightly better, or do you think it's a much of a mushroom for the other squads? Uh, I, I think it's pretty close to that uh, 2007 squad that was probably um, the best squad that we've ever had uh, that went to win the 2009 Lions series and uh, then the Tri-Nations where we beat New Zealand twice uh, in New Zealand. So I think uh, it's pretty close to that um, squad. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd be tempted to say it's, it's one of the best um especially when guys like Lucanio Um and Andre Pollard are in there, um, just that extra world-class talent. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's much of a muchness. If they win it, uh, if they win this World Cup, I think I think the, the conversation is over. It's no longer a debate. No, I'd fully agree. I think that's, that's a great way to end it. So, now big thanks, Jar, for jumping on. I'm sure we'll chat throughout the World Cup, hopefully, as well. So, big thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was great to chat. To anyone that's made this far in the podcast, follow, follow us on all our platforms Spotify at the Top Road Podcast, Twitter at Retail, Instagram at Top Road Podcast, even on TikTok highlights, but everywhere at the Tell Rugby. So please follow us everywhere and we'll catch you next week.